Okay. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys all doing? Are you guys as excited as we are about this move? Man, I tell you, that we went, we went with the staff last week to walk through the building again. But if you've ever bought a house, it's one thing when you look at it that first time and you're walking through and you're like, hey, this is cool, I like it. Then when you're actually walking through it, like right at the end, you're like, okay, where am I going to put my toaster? Where's the refrigerator going to go? Where's this going to happen? It was a whole new experience walking through, and I tell you, I'm even more excited than I was before because it is going to be amazing. Pastor Gabe touched really quick on the, um, the, the first service, July 3rd, out there, but I want to let you know the number one complaint we have when we have, I don't know it's complaint, but issue that we have when we do barbecues and cookouts out here is there's virtually no shade unless you come inside, right? There, with that giant tent that we have, it's going to be so cool. If you haven't been over there, we're going to put tables and stuff inside. Kids can hang out and roll down the lawn. We've already seen kids rolling down the lawn while we do this. It's going to be amazing. If you can and if you're here, mark that out, July 3rd. Be there for that very first time. It's going to be so exciting. I think it's just going to be, it's going to be amazing. The other thing I just want to mention really quick, we had our first midweek, our first Wednesday service we had uh, this last week. And uh, I actually see some people that were here at that, and they're here again for, this, for the second time around on the same message. So that's, uh, I'm glad that you're here. But just keep that in your mind. If something happens, you can't make it on Sunday, we do have that Wednesday evening option. It's the same message that you, what you'll hear today is the message we preached on Wednesday. So it'll, it's kind of a sneak preview that you get couple little different things that we'll add here today that I hope will make it uh, worthwhile. But anyway, I just want to keep that out there. We want to grow that midweek service and just give people another, another option. So, okay, let's get going. I don't want to take any more time doing that stuff. Um, we're in the Gospel of Mark still. We are going to take the first two weeks of in, when we're in the new building and just have messages of just praise, the things that God has done to get us to that place. But couple more weeks, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're still there. Gospel of Mark, I just, again, I just love it. Mark is, number one, I love the way he puts things. When I was in school and I was writing term papers, I, the thing I hated the most was a number of words that you had to use. Because, like, I've said everything I want to say in 15 words. Now I only need 1,500 more and I'll be at the limit. Mark, is, Mark has no such issues like that. He's like, let's just get to the point and talk about what's happening. And the gospel of Mark is all about, really, you could boil this whole gospel down um, essentially to, to serve one another in love and humility, really. Serve one another in love and humility, and, and then you would have the theme of the entire gospel of Mark. And so everything that we teach in this as we're studying our way through it, we kind of have to look at it through that lens of the point of this is humility, serving. And that's what it's all about. So when we look at a message like today, we have to think of it in terms of that. No matter kind of how off the wall the message, the, what's going on seems to be, we have to look at it that way. So when we talked last, last time, the last week, um, the disciples we're having a real hard time with this idea of serving in humility because it went so against everything that they were ever taught growing up. It went against their culture, and they were struggling with it, much like we still kind of struggle today. We know we're supposed to, 
But just doing it sometimes is hard. And so remember the disciples were, were struggling with it so bad that as the parents were bringing their little children to Jesus to have him bless them, they were trying to keep the parents and the kids away. Like, no, our, our, our Jesus, our rabbi, our, the, the Messiah, he needs to have his space. And Jesus is like, I'm not here to have personal space. I'm here to love and to serve. And, and they had a hard time with that. And so Jesus kind of rebuked him for that. And then we have what's called the rich young ruler. Remember that one? And, th- and this guy, he was so genuine in his wanting to do things the right way. He wanted to, I'm, I'm not sure he wanted to serve, but he wanted to want to serve. Does that make sense? I want to want the things that you're teaching. But he had taken his whole life to get to this point where he had some status. And then he finds out that what he had worked for his whole life, the thing that he probably hung his hat on, like, look at all I've achieved, Jesus is going, that's not, that's not worth anything in this kingdom that we're building. I need you to be able to give that all away and just serve. And man, did he have a hard time with that. He, he struggled. And, and man, can you imagine how that would be? The thing you've spent your whole life, like if I asked you right now, what's your highest achievement in life? What thing would you say if somebody asked, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished in your entire life? And unless that thing is following Christ with all my heart, which let's be fair, for a lot of us it may not be, but if somebody then told you, well, forget about that because that means nothing. I want you to do this other thing instead. That'd be a hard thing to grasp, and that's what he was struggling with. So that's where they are. They had just done that. Now they're getting ready to pack up and start moving on because remember, Jesus is, is on the kind of that final stretch. He's, he's setting aside all the general ministry in the various places, and he's just heading towards Jerusalem where things will, will finally come to a, to a consummation. So that's where they are. But before they actually pack up, Jesus gives them one final little thing to chew on. Remember, they're walking everywhere they go. So they've got plenty of time out on the road. Jesus gives them one final thing. And this was the last scripture from last week, Mark 10, 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then they set out. They set out on their journey, continuing through up towards Jerusalem. So as they walk, you can imagine the, the disciples, like, just like any human being would, would do, they're talking, like, what did he mean by that? And then they're just discussing it, right? They're discussing it as they walk. So this week, when we go, we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. The first thing we find out, they still don't get it. That's pretty much the first thing we find out. Mark 10, 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. The way this is worded, if you parse it out, and I won't go too deeply into it, but if you look at it, the way it's worded, it's not just Jesus and the disciples. Okay, this road, and I'll show you in a minute, this road is very well traveled. It's very, it'd be like saying they went up I-25 by themselves. It's never going to (coughs) happen. So they're walking. There's a whole bunch of people along. They're kind of various random travelers. Some go in the same direction. Some go in the opposite direction. They're not alone, in other words. 
That word amazed, when it says, if you read this and go, okay, they, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead, and they were amazed. You might be going, what are they amazed about? Look, Jesus is walking on the same path that we're walking on. It doesn't seem that amazing. When you look at that word amazed, though, it's a mixture that kind of means speechless, but also a little bit of fear mixed in there. Okay, like we're not sure what to say about this situation. So the reason they were in that place, number one, they're trying to reconcile in their heads the last thing Jesus told them, probably arguing amongst themselves already, which they've been doing this whole time. But here's the other thing. Jesus was a wanted man. He was, he was being pursued by various groups of people, and here he is on the most well-traveled path. It was so well-traveled, the Romans had actually paved large parts of it, and he's walking out in front of them. He's not hiding. He's not disguised so that he looks like someone else. He is boldly walking right out in front of them, basically right the path you would expect him to take, walking right into the lion's den. Now, conventional wisdom would have told them, just as it would tell us today, if you're wanted and you're trying to show up at a place, maybe go in the back way. Maybe not take the obvious path that they would expect you to take so they'd be waiting for you somewhere along the path. Or maybe, here's a thought, don't go there at all if they're looking for you. But that's not what he was doing. And so when it says they were amazed, they're just like, what are we doing? He's walking into this place that they want to they arrest him. They want to kill him. And he's just walking out in front of us. So that's what's going on. Let me show you a map of the, of the region real quick. If you've seen this, remember this area on the right, Perea, that's kind of where he had been doing ministry. And then he's walking. I couldn't find a great map, but if you can see it, Jericho is just here. It's just to the west of the Jordan River that goes up there. And then Jerusalem, not that far away. It's right up in that area. But it's about a 15-mile hike. Okay, And I say hike because the road, let me show you the, a picture of what the road looks like. See that path right there? And you can walk it. You can hike it today. It is rocky. It is steep. A lot of it is just single track like that. Now, let me show you another little section right here. This is what's remaining of uh, the Romans' attempt to to pave it and to cut some stairs in and kind of make it well-traveled. So it's where it's possible to pave it and improve it. They've done that. So you can still go there and you can still see it. The point is, it's, it's steep, it's treacherous, and there's a lot of people going back and forth on it. So it's, you're not going to really be able to hide as you're walking along that path. So as they're walking, again, Jesus right out in front. He tries one more time to get through to them what's about to happen, okay? Mark 10, 33, that is. Mark 10, 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up high. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, this is the third time, if you've been keeping up and counting, this is the third time that he's told them explicitly what's going to happen to him. A little bit more detail each time. This is the first time, though, where he's mentioned being handed over to the Gentiles. So if you think about it, in this case, the Gentiles he's talking about specifically is the Romans. So he's saying, I'm going to, 
I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Pharisees who are then going to hand me over to the Romans. He's predicting all of this before it ever happens. Mark 10.34, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. So I'm not sure Jesus is leaving any room for ambiguity there. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. Again, the third time. He adds a little more detail each time, but they're still not even getting this. They struggle to understand. How do we know they struggled? If we look at Luke's parallel account, so Matthew and Luke also have parallel accounts. Luke 18.34 says, The disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Again, not a whole lot of ambiguity there. They didn't get it, even though he's still trying to tell them. Now, as if to illustrate their near total lack of understanding here, Mark 10.35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, remember also known as the sons of thunder, came up to Jesus. So they're walking along this path. He had just told them the horrible things that was going to happen to him. And they walk up to him and tap him and go, yeah, yeah, uh, Jesus, my brother and I have something we want to ask you. (laughs) Here's what they say. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about that? We want us to do. So they had, they had just recently witnessed the transfiguration along with Peter. They probably thought they had some kind of special status. Like, right, yeah, I know those guys need to be all respectful of our rabbi, but we're, we're special, right? I'm sure that's what they were thinking. <laughs> now, here's an interesting side note. Okay, sons of thunder. Sounds super, like, these guys are serious, substantial dudes, right? If you read... The parallel account in Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 20 specifically. Rather than where this says, James and John came up to Jesus and asked him this. Here's how Matthew 20, 20 puts it. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So you could see it like maybe had him by the ear. Come up, we're going to ask Jesus a question. The mother of the sons of thunder. Came out. Now, we look into this. The mother of the sons of thunder, James and John, was probably Salome. We've taught about Salome from time to time. That would make her Jesus' aunt. So that would probably give her some boldness saying, hey, we're going to go. Jesus is my nephew. We're going to come up and ask some things on behalf of Jesus' cousins then, right? So they probably thought they had some kind of special connection, special status. But either way... However it went down, think about how it would make you feel. Your closest followers, your friends, your disciples, you're training them, you're teaching them, you're, you're dragging them along through life, you're doing life with them, and these are the guys that you're going to try and hand all your ministry off to when you leave. And you see this dynamic happen. Here's a quick image just to get your head around again what the Sons of Thunder might have looked like. There. So we have the one with the beard and the, and the white headdress. That is probably the elder, so that's probably James. 
The younger one on the right, kind of with all the curly hair, that would probably be John. We know that because there was quite an age discrepancy between the two. I don't know who the guy in the back is necessarily. I think the one on the right's Jesus. Pretty sure of that. But that's just a little, just to kind of wrap your mind around a little bit. Mark 10, 36 says, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, so they asked this question, whether it's the mom, probably was Salome, and John and Mark just kind of, we're just going to skim over the part that it was their mom asking the question for them. But if you're writing this book, <clears throat> when these two godly disciples, sons of thunder of Jesus come up and and they ask him this question, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? If you were writing the book, what would their question be? If I was doing it, it'd be, it'd be, Lord, how can we ease your suffering in your time of need? It'd be something like that. Or what do you need us to do as you fulfill your destiny? It'd be something grandiose like that, right? But the Bible's not a fictional novel. The Bible's got nothing to do with making anyone look like a hero or any greater than they are. It's, it's about, it's God's instruction of how we are to interact with one another and interact with a holy God. And because of that, it's very real. So here's what we have, Mark 10, 37. Here's their response. They said to him, grant that, me way, that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. They're not at all focused on the horrible sacrifice that Jesus is about to make on behalf of all mankind. They're elbowing each other for position in the government that's to come. (laughs) They're probably still thinking of, what can we gain from this? As most of the disciples still were. See, they still assumed, in their minds, they still, again, they had a hard time with this idea of the Messiah, the chosen one, coming to really, truly give himself over to be crucified on the cross. They probably still were thinking, is this some kind of metaphor? Any minute now, the thunder and the lightning is going to come out. Jesus is going to open up a can on all these people. They're still waiting for it. So they're probably, when they ask that question, they're like, it's only... It's only a matter of days now before the new government is established in Jerusalem with Jesus as the head, and we want those chairs on either side of him. So they're probably still thinking, okay, there's so much we don't understand, but just in case, let's ask. Make sure that we're all set up when the new thing happens. Uh, Mark 10, 38, Jesus' answer to them. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, the word baptism there, I know it sounds kind of repetitive the way he says it, but that's that's the the, the trial that you're going to go through. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the, the common use of that term, which was, I'm about to go through a trial. Are you able to go through that trial with me? And the cup, when he talks about the cup to drink, that's kind of your portion, your lot. And we, we know that Psalm 16.5 is the same use of it where it says, the Lord is, the, is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. That's kind of the idea he's talking about with the cup and with the baptism. But when he asks him that question, are you able to drink from the cup? Or are you able to be baptized with the way that I'm about to be? 
Their answer, Mark 10, 39, they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Jesus knew. Now their assumption, they probably thought it was going to be a victory parade. That's probably what they're expecting. Yay, we get to join him for the victory parade. But Peter later on will write this, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. Now that would come later. But right now, they were still struggling with what's going to happen. But did you notice that Jesus didn't rebuke them for saying that when they said, yes, we can. Yes, we can share in that cup. Yes, we can share in your baptism. He didn't rebuke them and go, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting that he didn't do that, but you know why? Because just because they didn't know what they were about to go through and they didn't know, Jesus knew. And Jesus knew that when the time came, they would be ready. When the, when the time came, they would be willing. And so he knows them better than they know themselves. They don't even know what they're asking or what they're saying, but he knows. He knows them better than he knows than they know themselves. And that's when Jesus calls you to a higher destiny, you're not lacking anything to achieve that destiny. You may not know it, but he knows it. And so when he calls you to something, our job is just to say yes, not how's this going to work, or maybe I need a little bit more training, a little bit more time, a little bit more experience. When Jesus calls you to something, it's because he already knows that you're capable of that. It's just like these guys. They didn't even understand what they were asking, but he knew. And he said, yeah, you will share in that cup. You will share in that baptism. We know later on James, James would indeed share in Jesus' suffering because he's beheaded ultimately by Herod. In fact, he's the first of the disciples to die. Acts 12.2 says, and he had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. That's Herod. So he was beheaded with a sword. John now, John being the younger in the picture that we saw, he's the last of the disciples to die. And although most accounts say that he died a natural death of old age, it's also said by multiple historical sources that he was boiled in oil. They tried to kill him literally boiled in oil for being a heretic, but he survived it. He survived it. And they didn't know what to do with him after he survived that, so they just exiled to him, him to an island. Like, let's just put him over here where he can't do any damage. And, of course, that's where he ends up writing the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't think being boiled in oil is sharing in Christ's sufferings, imagine what it would be because he was the last one to die, which means he got to watch every single one of his brothers, all the disciples, got to watch them be martyred for Jesus. Got to watch that happen. That, that is suffering. Mark 10:40. Jesus' response to their question says, but to sit on my right or my left is not mine to give but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. 
Now, so he's telling them, it's not mine to give. We can't make the mistake like some people do, thinking, well, what's, so Jesus can't grant places of favor? Jesus can't grant those kind of blessings? Of course he can. That's not the way to look at that. What Jesus is saying is, I can't give it to you because there's more in play here than you understand, and it's not arbitrarily given. Okay? And that's not a major point of study in this, but he's telling them, you shouldn't be pursuing that. That is not what your pursuit should be, is a place of honor. And they're still, not, they're still not giving it, not getting it. And we know that because of the next verse, Mark 10, 41. Hearing this, so hearing that little interaction, hearing this, the other ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Again, if you were writing this, indignant would be, how dare you? ask our rabbi for a place of honor when he's just about to suffer and die. That's what you would think indignant meant, right? (laughs) No. Indignant translates in the Greek as agonikteo, which means to be angry or incensed, but it's not the same word as righteous indignation. There is righteous indignation. It's a different word. This word means we didn't think of it first. We're mad and we're indignant because you pulled Jesus aside and asked him for that favor and you beat us to it. That's why they're mad. It's got nothing to do with you shouldn't be asking those kind of inappropriate questions. (laughs) They wanted that place of honor for themselves and they were beaten to it, so they're mad. Mark 10, 42. Now Jesus has has to try and help them understand this. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. He's literally talking about the Romans, the whole Romans hierarchy and situation, the way that their society works, is you strive for position. And if you're not striving for the next higher position, whether it's military or political or in your own household, if you're not striving for the next higher position, the guy behind you is going to run over you. And he's probably going to kill you and take that position ahead of you. Backstabbing, ladder climbing, treachery, that's the way they did things. And more than that, once you achieved that next higher status, it was seen as a complete waste of everything if you didn't lord that status over the people behind you. It was the expectation. You strive to achieve, you backstab, you lie, cheat, steal to achieve the next higher level. And once you get there, you better use that. It'd be like winning a car and not driving it. Who does that? People would be angry. I should have been the one to win the car. But they're like, okay, once you get that status, go ahead, lord it over everyone because that's how it's done. They would have expected that. Absolutely would have expected that. And that's the way that the whole world operated at the time. And that's what even the disciples, not as Roman citizens, but that's what they were used to. That's how culture worked. You strive for those things. You jockey for position. And by doing that very same thing, the way the whole world does it, they proved that they still didn't understand the true nature of Jesus and what he came to do. Mark 10, 43, 44 says, but it's not this way among you. Jesus is still trying to explain it to them, teach them. Whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. He said the same thing to them multiple times. He's just trying to get them to understand. And later on, it seems like this is almost a contradiction to some of the things that Paul has taught, and Paul would obviously teach later. When Paul wrote the Galatians, Galatians 5.1, he said, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Okay, It's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So it seems like Paul is saying, hey, get that status, get above everybody else, and don't let anybody enslave you ever again. The Greek word for that phrase that says, do not be subject again, is anecho, which means don't let yourself become trapped in this. And it's important to look at it that way, because Jesus Christ came to set us free for the slavery of sin. That's what he came to do. And with that newfound freedom comes responsibility. You're not just set free to do whatever you want. You are set free to pursue those things that you should be pursuing. First Peter, again, First Peter 2.16. says, act as free people. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. See, a slave to sin can only blame their behavior on Satan. How many people do we see do that? Even today. My sin is Satan's fault. But you've been set free from that slavery. And so that means that your sin, although you may be tempted, is still your choice. And it is still your doing. See, slavery to sin leads to death. But being a voluntary bondservant of Christ leads to life. What a contrast. We're being asked, we're being told, do not let yourself be a slave and yet be a servant to everyone. What's the difference? Both are lives of servitude. The question is, which master will you serve? That's the question. Am I going to serve the master of worldly pursuit and, and of sin and pride and arrogance and greed? Or am I going to serve, am I going to serve the master that leads to life? And by doing that, you give it all up voluntarily. The end result might look to the world the same, but it's different. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom, I know I got a lot of Greek and a lot of Hebrew in here. The word ransom translates as lutron, and that word means it means purchasing the freedom of a slave. So whatever, it's not just whatever that slave was worth. The word lutron, what it what it means really at its heart is if a, if a slave is worth, let's say in today's term, you know, $100, you're not only purchasing that but you're paying off whatever value that that slave could ever have in the future. The value of their future work, the value of all of their future contributions. And that's what that word means. Son of man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning that his life as a ransom for you is not just the sins you've committed, but everyone that you ever will. And he paid that price paid that price for you. So the bottom line here, the bottom line here is hard to, 
to, to reconcile in your mind. The bottom line here is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to set us free from bondage to the slavery that sin creates so that we can voluntarily submit ourselves to lifelong service to Christ. That's a hard thing to get in your mind, isn't it? But yes, that's the answer. That's why it's such a struggle. That's why the disciples struggled with it. See, those who chase this worldly status, riches, power, they're going to have a hard time understanding how that works. If that's what your lifelong pursuit is, you're going to have a hard time understanding that instead of pursuing the next thing, more riches, more status, more wealth, you should set that aside. The rich young ruler had a hard time with it. The sons of thunder obviously still struggle with it. The disciples in general couldn't grasp it. And today, after the hindsight benefit of 2,000 plus years of teaching, of scripture, of study, of everything, not to mention the Holy Spirit that we have, that they didn't. Every time it says they couldn't understand it, they didn't have the deposit of the Holy Spirit yet. So they were just looking at everything through a worldly lens. And I would challenge you that if you have a hard time understanding this concept, maybe you're not looking through it through a Holy Spirit lens. Maybe you're looking at it through a worldly lens. And let me ask you some questions that might illustrate this. These questions might be a little pointed, so bear with me. But I want you to honestly think about that as I ask you some personal questions. Now, what have you done, just in general, and you don't have to say it out loud, what have you done in the last, let's just say, week to provide a better life for yourself and for your family? Okay, just think about that. What have you done in the last week to provide for yourself or for your family? I'm sure we all have at some level, right? What have you done in the last week to make improvements on your home? Maybe to raise the value of your, of your home or your car, maybe. What have you done in the last week to earn a better position or better status at the place you work? Okay. And how much attention do you devote to provide for your hobbies or free time, recreation? How much time and energy have you devoted to those things? So just think about that for a minute. Let that simmer. Think about those questions. And it's not wrong, by the way. It's not wrong. I just want you to get, a, get your mind around what you've, what you've put your energies towards. Now, here's the hard part of this question. Part B of this question. What have you done in the last week to serve someone who had no way to pay you back? Think about that. What have you done in the last week to help someone else get ahead in life or get ahead in their job without expecting anything in return? Again, you don't have to shout out answers. I want you to just think about it. When's the last time you set aside your convenience, your free time, your pride to help someone with no agenda and no hopes of ever receiving anything for your help? When was the last time you showed genuine love to someone just because you know Jesus would have? Ooh, I struggle with that one. That's a hard one for me. There's so many times where I have to think, I cannot love that person. 
That person has done nothing to engender any sort of feelings of love. But then I have to stop and say, but Jesus would have. And that's hard. I am getting better at it. But it's getting better because I constantly have that in my head. And every time that thought, that thought enters my mind about I can't love them because of what they've done, Jesus would love them. Not to mention the fact that he loves me. And what I've done is probably far worse than that. Here's the last one that I want to leave you with. When's the last time that you prayed for someone that you don't personally like? Prayer is powerful. And so when we see someone that we don't personally like and that we're having a hard time loving, maybe our response should be, I'm going to pray for them. And not, not these kind of prayers, Lord, show them the error of their ways. <laughs> not that kind of prayer. That's not a loving prayer. It's, Lord, you know them. Help me to love them. Help me to show them your love. It's okay sometimes to pray those other prayers, but not your heart matters. Heart matters. It's what Jesus meant when he said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's exactly what he meant. And when he says, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember that was from Matthew 18. You have to set aside all pretense of what can I gain from this situation? What's in it for me? You have to set all that aside and just come to Jesus like a child. And it's also what he means. This is the last scripture from today. It's from Mark 12. <clears throat> Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor means putting them above you. Not alongside, not equal, not almost there. Putting them ahead of yourself. So then, the last one sentence synopsis of this message for today is this. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not about what you can gain for yourself, but what you can give away to others. Because that's what Jesus did for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your heart for us. Lord, help us to have that heart for others. You love us despite the things that we do. You love us despite the things that you know are in our mind. Everything that we are ashamed of, Lord, you know. There's nothing hidden from you. And yet you still love us. So Father, help us to see others around us that same way. Help us to be able to set aside the things we think we know about someone or, or the things that we expect out of someone and just love them because you did. Lord, help us to set aside pride, personal gain, thoughts of Thoughts of self-importance help us to set those things aside and just serve because that's how we are different. <clears throat> that's how we're different in this kingdom. This world has enough, enough pursuit of riches and wealth and more and more and more. Let us be able 
to set aside things in the way that the rich young ruler couldn't. Set aside all those things that distract us from pursuing you and from showing your heart to your people. Help us be an instrument of change in this world, not through, not through any political action, not through anything that we do, but just by showing genuine love for one another, especially those people we may not want to like. Let us be different. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we go into communion, we have prayer team standing in the back. I know some of these questions can seem maybe convicting. I hope they're convicting and not condemning. I do not mean any of those things to be condemning, but they should convict you if there's something that hits home. And sometimes we need people to pray with us over that. So look for somebody in the back that can pray. Before we move into communion, if you just want to sit in the chair and just soak in some worship before you get up, let the Lord just minister to you. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you and show you those places where maybe we can do better. If you need prayer for healing, if you need prayer for lies that you're believing, things that have been spoken over you. We have prayer warriors in the back who would love to partner with you in that. And sometimes it's just, I don't know how to pray for that thing. Go back there, take advantage of that. And then when you're ready, move about and take communion. At the crosses, we have self-serve like we always do. Gabe and I will be up front here with the wine. But let's do it with just thankfulness in our hearts. But more than just thankfulness, this time, I want you to think about when you take communion, what you're saying is, yes, Lord, I accept the mission that you gave me, which is to love, your, love the Lord your God and to love one another. And only when we have accepted that and we have a firm grasp on that, now let's go out in the world and share that love with everyone. That's our job. And when you're ready to say yes and accept that, come up and take communion with us and let's celebrate what the Lord has done and what he continues to do in our hearts. Amen.